there is a group and it's become a political force. ¿Qué? ¿No me vas a hablar? No puedo. Estoy muerto. In 2018, a movie called Roma swept the Oscars. It was the antithesis of Oscar bait. The hero was a dark-skinned live-in nanny or domestic worker. Me gusta estar muerta. Her desires, her battles, her indignities were front and center. And then... Fast forward to the first 100 days of Joe Biden's presidency. For too long, caregivers who are disproportionately women and women of color and immigrants have been unseen, underpaid, and undervalued. He's talking about domestic workers, too. And his words, they are not actually his. He specifically said, I'm going to invest in the jobs of care workers who've been undervalued and unseen for too long. I mean, that's huge. You know, that the president of the United States would speak those words. Those words are her words. Today on Art of Power... Ai Jin Poo, one of the most influential labor leaders on earth, a household name in some circles, and a hidden force in American politics. She's organized domestic workers into a cause celebre from the Oscars to the White House. And she has grappled her entire life with being a woman of privilege, leading a constituency with far less of it. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You are associated, your name is associated with domestic workers, the care economy. Why is that your thing? Hmm. I mean, there's so many ways to answer this question. Modern society can be cold, cruel even. Yes, we are living longer, but think about the conditions of death itself. How Aijin thinks about the role of caretakers in the economy, it has something to do with how her grandfather died. He didn't want to go into a nursing home, but when he lost his eyesight, Aichen's family could not take care of him anymore and sent him to a facility. The conditions there were appalling to me, um, and he very quickly just became unrecognizable, like a shell of who he was. And the fact that somebody who you knew and looked up to, I mean, I grew up watching him do Tai Chi in the driveway every morning. He was such a pillar of like strength and discipline and Hmm. it was just really, really heartbreaking to me. And certainly I feel guilty about it. Aijin was born in Pittsburgh. Her family came to America from Taiwan. They'd survived upheavals back home and migration to a new home. And then by the end of her grandfather's life, they could not afford to stay together. Care at home was too expensive. Aijin says the last time she saw her grandfather, he was in a dark room with flickering fluorescent lights and a half dozen other people, all in varying degrees of pain. 
I remember the smell. Um, it smelled terrible. It smelled like death. And my grandfather, his bed was kind of along one of the walls, and he hadn't eaten the food. This may sound familiar. It's what many of us have done or fear will have to do for our parents. I just noticed something else at the facility. The caregivers who worked there were so overwhelmed. I mean, they were just kind of rushing from room to room, trying to take care of everybody. And it was just a, it was a heartbreaking scene overall. And I'll never forget it. You weren't angry at them for not taking care of him sufficiently? No, I was angry at the situation, but I wasn't angry at them. It was very apparent that the conditions of their work were as outrageous as the conditions for the patients who were staying there. Mm. I do think that's one thing distinct about you, Aijin. Um, and I've been in that kind of situation with my elder loved one. Uh, and man, the rage I felt at the, <laughs> whether it's the nurse, the nurse's assistant, um, rage. Why aren't you doing your job better? Mm -hmm. um, but that's not your reaction. Your reaction is to look at the system you're in. And I'm sorry, Ajin, that's not a quote-unquote normal reaction. Most people don't do that. <laughs> they don't. Let's be real. Really? Yeah, of course. No? And I mean, you've talked to enough people to know that plenty of us get angry at the caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I will say is that, and this is partly my training as an organizer, I've trained myself um, so that my default is to think about power in every situation. And mm. it's so often the people with the least amount of power and resources who end up in the most impossible situations. Aijin was a student activist in New York City at Columbia University. She protested police violence. She petitioned for ethnic studies at her school. She majored in women's studies. She was curious about the lives of working-class women of color. And so, in 1998, she joined a nonprofit that worked with domestic workers. They were largely from the Philippines. Uh, many of them were shocked when they came to the U.S. to find that they had less protections and less rights in this country that was supposed to be the land of the free. Many of these women, before they came to America, worked in Hong Kong. There they had strong unions, domestic work, caring for babies or the elderly. It wasn't off the books, hidden. It was governed by strict union contracts. These migrant women wanted the U.S. to be more like Hong Kong. They said, you know, we need a standard contract, and why don't we have a standard contract? Simple answer. In the U.S., domestic workers are not allowed to be in unions, let alone have standard contracts. The reason why goes back to the dark underside of a labor victory. Almost a century ago, lawmakers passed a couple sweeping labor laws. By this act, employers are bound to bargain collectively with an organized majority of their workers. It's basically the reason we don't have 10-year-olds working overtime in sweatshops anymore. 
which is a great thing. If you don't recognize our union, you'll complain to the National Labor Relations Board. But lawmakers back then decided to exclude two groups from protection, farm workers and domestic workers, many who were black women, descendants of the enslaved. That lack of any rule of law, it's created a highly unpredictable situation for the women working these jobs today. We kind of call it the Wild West sometimes because you never quite know what you're going to get. You might have a wonderful household that you work for for many years and sometimes generations where you're treated well, you have health care and, and... Paid vacation even. Paid vacation even, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where we've heard of literally human trafficking, modern-day slavery, mm-hmm. and rape, sexual assault. And then there's mm-hmm. everything in between. Kind of like a luck of the draw. Ijin decided it was time to dismantle those old laws, bit by bit, in baby steps. She began roaming Central Park and Fifth Avenue, ritzy neighborhoods, looking for women of color who were pushing strollers with white babies. She carried pamphlets and invited these women from Asia, the Caribbean, Latin America, into meetings. She built a base, a constituency, and then she brought them to New York City Council to speak up for themselves finding the right people who will do the right thing to protect the vast majority of us who have not had a voice all for centuries is not easy. Domestic workers the domestic workers, with Ijin's support, got New York City to pass a bill to write down rules for domestic work. The vote was unanimous, 49 in favor, zero opposed. Then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg signed it. This legislation amends the administrative code and will, for the first time, protect the basic rights of domestic workers by requiring... Only, this part sucks, the win was pretty much symbolic. One of the many declarations passed by the city that was feel-good, but had no real teeth, no way to really be enforced. So I'm sorry, did you fight for something at the city level that that wasn't really worth fighting for? It was worth fighting for because it taught us so much about Mm -hmm. how to fight (laughs) and what we needed to fight for. Ijun's voice, arrestingly calm, maybe even passive, it masks a drive that is so aggressive inside her, it's created her highest highs and her very lowest lows. The drive to win. Aijin doesn't want to just fight the good fight. She wants to taste victory. After the symbolic skirmish, Aijin Pu co-founded a new organization, the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And her team expanded their fight to the entire state of New York, doing more street outreach, this time not just in the city, but in the wealthy suburbs. We spent three months building towards a big convention. They wanted to force the state government to pass a law, with teeth this time, for domestic workers. And over the course of the following few months, we um, prioritized and focused and ended up with 12 provisions. I'm sorry, I have like totally the wrong question in my head. I'm like... So how many meetings did that take? (laughs) It's like a lot of meetings. It was so many meetings. Her team took those provisions and, with the help of a top law school, New York University, 
turn them into a domestic workers' bill of rights, draft legislation that the state could enact. Nothing like it existed before. Igen's team rented a 15-passenger van and took off for Albany in the dead of winter. If anybody's ever made that trip, it's actually quite treacherous. <laughs> um. House will come to order. They went in search of a state legislator to sponsor their bill. I think that Albany had no idea <laughs> what we were talking about. Uh, we would have meetings where members of the legislature would ask us, "What? what is this? Is this about domestic violence? <laughs> wow. What was also fascinating at the time was many of the state legislators had their own experiences hiring nannies. That's what I was just thinking about. Exactly. (laughs) They're like, my help is literally in my office now telling me that there's a policy issue. Exactly. Exactly. I just noticed that the class status, the personal experience of each lawmaker really impacted how they saw if they saw this as a serious policy issue. But I know a lot of youngsters that are babysitters and do dishes and clean the houses and everything else that a domestic worker does. What do they do over and above that that would uh, separate them from uh, a teenager or a, a young adult? We heard everything from, I paid my nanny really well. And when she retired, I made sure that her kids were taken care of. I did my part. Or my nanny, I had to convince her to pay taxes. She didn't want to go on the books. And then we certainly heard a lot about immigration, that a lot of these people don't have their papers, and therefore X, Y, Z. Therefore, they don't have labor rights. Yeah. And so as you're hearing these kind of negative responses from lawmakers, are there any lawmakers who are on board? I think that for every one of those experiences, we also had the experience of, oh, yeah, this is a really good point. Many of our ancestors and family members were domestic workers. Yes, without the nanny in my household, I wouldn't be here. Two of my aunts were uh, domestic workers. They're part of our society, and we have an obligation to protect them. As many kind of hostile, frustrating conversations as we had, we also had encouraging ones. And, you know, we learned very quickly to celebrate every single little victory and mm. having a positive meeting where we didn't get laughed out of the room. We, can, we ended up considering a, a, a victory <laughs> that we should, worthy of celebration. She has a quite generous definition of the word victory. The New York State campaign goes on for six years. Six years of driving back and forth on a super fun commute to Albany. I just can't tell if they're really going to win. The Speaker of the Assembly, who was Jewish and very um, devoted to his faith, We had struggled for years to get time and attention from him Mm. and certainly had never gotten support. Then that 
changed. A grassroots Jewish organization working with IGEN got six synagogues, rabbis and congregants, to reach out to the speaker to invite him to an event and win or shame him over. It worked. I just remember thinking, like, there really should be no such thing as an unlikely ally um, when you're fighting for something like hmm. basic human dignity. And, um, and I felt like that was our superpower in that moment. Can you recall, because you're describing the moment where it's like, yeah, we're being taken seriously now. We're, we're finally adults in the room. Like, how did you feel in that moment? Not, not so much like we, but you. I think I felt like I had the greatest job in the world. <laughs> you know, it's like, if my job is creating the context for people to show up for each other and and be powerful together and bring the best of who they are in the service of change like that's the best job ever creating the context for people to show up for each other that's a mouthful and a worldview, Aijin is a new type of labor leader. She looks at life through the lens of class, yes, but she does not talk the language of class warfare. Does she think all bosses are cruel? No. Does she think our economy is cruel? Yes. And it makes some people do cruel things. So let's change that for everyone's sake. Only, in the drive to win some change, Aijin pissed off some folks she thought were on her side. And in a humiliating turn of events, Aijin the labor leader, the protester, she became the target of protest. I was like, wow, much respect. And I was also really horrified and shaken. That's after the break. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. If you're enjoying Art of Power, hit subscribe. We've got new episodes every week, and we want you to hear them. Aijin Hu has done a lot of work to spell out how the pain of distinct groups, workers and bosses, women and people of color, is related, how it intersects. That was the topic of her first book, The Age of Dignity. On the eve of her book tour, she was optimistic about the human potential to come together and win. But then her heart was crushed. A whole group of people, many of whom are in wheelchairs, basically come in and begin to protest my book event. Wow. I can't speak. I can't have a conversation. The event basically stops in its tracks and there's chanting. And as somebody who's organized a thousand protests and... (laughs) (laughs) To bring shame on a target who deserved to be shamed. (laughs) I was like, wow, much respect. Um, And I was also really horrified and shaken. 
people with disabilities, some in wheelchairs, came to protest Ai Jinpu because they felt she was a threat to their survival. She thought she was fighting the good fight for domestic workers. And finally, on the national stage, Ai Jin's camp was negotiating with the White House, then under Barack Obama, to change a rule so that two million domestic workers could get paid more with overtime. Here's the problem with that. If you have a disability, you might be on a fixed income, and you might not have the ability to pay your caretaker more money. Oftentimes, it means for people with disabilities that they end up in institutions. Yeah, institutionalized, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so instead of really stopping and listening and thinking about in that moment what is another way. Mm-hmm. We just moved ahead. We were like, "This is our shot. This is our one chance." Ai Jin Pu, Ms. We are all on the same side. She was so excited at the prospect of a big win. She had not bothered to really look at how it would affect a small but clearly vocal minority. And what was their demand? What were they saying? I think the demand was to stop the home care rule change. Mm. Not that I had the power to make it go or make it stop, <laughs> but um... but that's interesting, right? Because what happens is that you are becoming for others a symbol of power, whether you think mm-hmm. you have it or not. Other people think you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I had some internalized ableism, where I just made a lot of assumptions about what the. Concerns of the disability community were, and part of what was going through my mind was that I was perhaps not the right leader for this movement and this work. I wondered whether I needed to be braver, stronger, able to. Face into all of the pain and the trauma and the the hardship that people are expressing, and that maybe I didn't have what it takes to navigate all of that. And I felt like, geez, I this is this may be too much. This may be too hard. It was easily among the most embarrassing moments of Aijin's life. She thought about canceling her tour and going into hiding. But as she got past the sting, she had this sense. Wait a minute. We're fighting over crumbs again. As long as all these programs are underfunded, it's always going to be a Hunger Games. And we accept them because we can't see the full spectrum of power and, and how it's operating and who's really in charge and who's really benefiting. We can only see each other at the bottom of the, <laughs> at the totem pole. Disabled people are not better off when their caretakers are paid next to nothing. She saw that at the nursing home where her grandfather died. It is a false choice. It always was a false choice. And the only reason why we were in that position was because this program was so underfunded and undervalued. And Mm -hmm. if we actually were able to come together, we could change all of that. 
And despite the protesters who showed up at her book tour, plenty of disability advocates also reached out to Aijin to say, hey, we agree with you. Workers should have rights and disabled people should have care. They got the federal rule change, a big win for low-wage workers during the Obama era, and they got to work in about a dozen states to push for more money for disabled people to pay their caretakers. The protest against Aijin Pu, it brought up a lifelong issue for her, that feeling that she does not belong. Aijin is the child of two educated professionals. Her dad's a neuroscientist, her mom's a chemist and cancer researcher. Yes, you're a woman of color. You're also, I mean, by your own account, a person of privilege, that you come from, if not a wealthy, certainly an educated family. You then come into work that's about working class rights. You know, this isn't the first time we're talking. We're not just meeting in the context of art of power. I met you in New York City. My recollection of New York City is a lot of very big egos and a lot of purity testing. Mm. Are you down to do this work? Do you belong in this work? What are you doing here? What's your cred? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Is that something you encountered? Yeah, I did really wonder oftentimes what was my place, you know, should I be organizing other middle-class API women who have my exact same, <laughs> you know, pedigree? <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. But you never quite know where you're going to find your place. For me, it took years of questioning and exploring and grappling and... Mm-hmm. If I believed that organizing domestic workers was really just about domestic workers, I think I might have questioned my place and my role for longer and in more fundamental ways. But because I believe that making the world better for domestic workers is about how we make the world better for everyone, Mm -hmm. I think I actually have a legitimate place in this work if that makes sense. It does make sense. I just saw or has over time come to see the domestic worker, her status is a signal for how society is doing overall. Back in school, Aijin was a women's studies major. She studied different phases, waves in feminism. We pushed for women to have more opportunity in every industry, but Mm -hmm. they went to work relying upon underpaid, undervalued women of color. Mm -hmm. And we never changed the fact that we never valued care. Mm. And so we're still in this situation of having sure made some progress, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, not changed the fundamentals of how the economy works in a way that devalues women and women's work. Mm It's basically, for generations, the women's movement, a lot of the gains have been getting us what men have, not changing Mm -hmm. what is valued in society to be aligned with the core of who we are. That's right. 
Exactly. We don't want equality in a world that is designed by and for men. We want to change it all. Mm-hmm. To value every person's life and contributions and work. We want something different. Aijin has a calling to right the wrongs of feminist movements. She has a direct self-interest in it for her own well-being, her family's. And yes, she is very aware of her privilege. So much is more accessible to me because of my privilege. Like what? Uh, it's probably easier for me to raise money to fund this work. I know for a fact, <laughs> actually, mm-hmm. that you know, having gone to an elite high school, that I am not afraid of <laughs> engaging with people with money and asking for money, and mm-hmm. I don't have this notion that people of wealth are better than me or that I should be afraid of them in any way, and. Mm. And I actually feel like I'm offering them an opportunity、um, when I ask them for money to be a part of something that is really awesome. <laughs> That's、um, a really badass sales pitch. <laughs> you know, you're gonna give me 10k, and it's actually a gift for you. <laughs> In some ways, I really believe that. For people listening. Who want to join movements? Who feel like they may have a role to play, but they don't share the specific identity. Whose rights really need to be fought for and lifted? What's your advice to that person? I don't think it's about identity. I think that it is about values. We will have different roles to play within the project of making those values real, but every single one of us should be a protagonist in moving us towards that vision. There's this whole idea of step up, step back in the social justice movement of like. If you're somebody who speaks a lot, you may want to take a step back. If you're somebody who doesn't speak a lot, you may want to step up. And then, you know, there are all kinds of screens. Like if you're a man or if you're white, you know, you kind of want to be mindful of how much space you're taking up in the room, etc. And I feel like we are in a step up, step up moment.、Mm. Um, And it's just a question of being smart about what stepping up looks like. Working class people and domestic workers included deserve the best people in the country working for them, and so I think there's a level of complexity there that we have to design for.、Um, you know, we can't have a bunch of really privileged people. Running social movements for poor people, but we also want to make sure that we have really powerful, excellent, impactful organizations and leaders who are working in the interests of working class and everyday people, and both are true.
In a previous episode of Art of Power, Barack Obama said that it is stories that organize people and money. Ai Poo has long understood that power of stories, and she's worked with creatives, with the best filmmakers, to change the story about who domestic workers are. In 2018, A-list actresses inspired by the Me Too movement invited leading women's activists to be their plus ones at the Golden Globes. And you're here with a special guest tonight. Yes, I am. Ai-jen Poo. Meryl Streep took Ai-jen. I hope people see the momentum and the energy. In 2019, Ai-jen, perennially self-conscious about how much space she takes up, went again to the Globes and the Oscars. She looked fabulous, by the way, in a red wine sequins dress, hugging her curves, a long slit up the thigh. So what is your inner monologue at the Academy Awards? <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, in that moment, I was kind of wishing that I was with the domestic workers who were across town having an Oscar party. <laughs> they made you go. <laughs> <laughs> it was a huge honor to be able to go. Um, and being in a room full of domestic workers would have been pretty awesome, too. She was invited by a man who keeps winning. Thank you so much. Being here doesn't get old. Uh, Alfonso Caron from Mexico grew up well-to-do and had a nanny. One of the 70 million domestic workers in the world without work rights. A Hollywood producer introduced Aijin to the famed director before his movie's release. She organized domestic workers, and he was making a movie about one called Roma. She went to the world's premiere. A domestic worker from Texas named Rosa San Luis and I were invited to see the film for the first time that anyone was seeing the film, including the actors. And so, you know, we were very nervous. We weren't sure, you know, what the film was going to be like at all. <laughs> and got on a plane and um, went and were totally blown away. And that was the day that we met Alfonso and talked to him about how... Um, how the film could be used in the service of the movement work. And how could it be? Um, never before had there been a film like it that really saw the world through the eyes of the domestic worker, where the domestic worker mm -hmm. was the protagonist, and where she was more than just a worker. She, was, she had an inner life, she, she had a life. Yeah. You saw her as a whole human being, and, um, and that was different. It's a breakthrough. They put together an advanced screening of the film for a few thousand domestic workers across the country. And they used the film as a moment to talk about their agenda in The New York Times, CNN, The Atlantic, The Hollywood Reporter. And they talked with a couple people in Congress. And so in the middle of the campaign, um, Senator, then Senator Harris, now Vice President Kamala Harris, and Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal announced that they would be introducing a National Bill of Rights for domestic workers. We're here today to take responsibility for the legacy of the Fair Labor Standards Act which excluded domestic workers and farm workers from protection. And it was all a part of the Roma campaign. 
remember the game Telephone? You whisper into one person's ear, and they whisper, and the next whispers, and at the end, either the message has gotten totally mangled, or, in Ijin's case, it makes it. More than 90% women, disproportionately women of color. So many of our domestic workers are women, women of color, immigrant women. Caregivers who are disproportionately women and women of color and immigrants. Ai-jin Poo got three industries, politics, media, entertainment, to support domestic workers. How are you feeling when you see your language coming out of their mouths? Feeling, um, feeling like we're winning. (laughs) Winning is good. There's nothing like winning. (laughs) It really is the best. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I mean, really what I'm thinking is, as I listen to you and I, like, do you, do you think you actually just know how to celebrate in a way some of us don't? I don't think I have that kind of, the highs are never especially high for me, Hmm. but they are for you. That makes me so sad. (laughs) Yeah, they, I mean, I feel like um, we as a species really do have to get better and better at celebrating our our progress and recognizing our wins because in in times of so much uncertainty it's like it's really easy to lose the thread and we find these moments to celebrate because they are a part of how we continue in this marathon right now ijen has a lot to celebrate domestic workers whom she now calls care workers, as in they do the work of caring for others, they are winning. Everybody is talking care and and the fact that care workers are finally being seen as essential workers, the fact that we have a president of the United States who has made care a part of every dimension of his economic agenda, not his women's agenda, not some side agenda, the economic agenda. It's really, really extraordinary. We built power from the margins until they started to disappear. Ai Jin Poo changed the world. So can you. My lessons from her journey. One, if you're stuck thinking everyone is the enemy, Stop and put on another set of glasses, ones that help you to see points of shared interest. Two, privilege is not a disqualifier. Don't pretend it doesn't exist when you have it. Observe how your privilege unfairly gives you a leg up, and if you want to be a moral leader, exploit that to help those less privileged. Three, feel the feels. Whether you land a hard-to-get meeting or a hard-to-get law, celebrate the wins.
This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks to Andy Lancet, the archivist at WNYC, for that New York City Council archive. If this episode landed for you, hit subscribe, subscribe, subscribe now. It's not much of a protest chant, but I'm trying. Go binge other episodes. Our guests are glorious, dropping wisdom bombs you will love. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends, your family, spread the word. Let me know what you think. Text me. 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Artfi411. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.